and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. How is everybody's week going? I have to say that I have got a very snotty cold this week, so I apologise that you've basically got to listen to me talking with a blocked nose on this podcast, but hopefully everybody else is keeping well in our little podcast family. Today we'll catch up with leading jumps trainer Dan Skelton, who looks forward to the forthcoming season and talks about working with the rest of equestrianism's famous Skelton family. It just works. It's just seamless. We, we all sort of know what we're seeing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and sometimes we need to discuss it, other times we don't, we just know what's going on. I'll be talking to our news team about the bombshell news from Modern Pentathlon that we've heard this week, the fact that it's also anti-bullying week, and the British Dressage AGM. Finally, trainer Jason Webb kicks off our new series about starting young horses. I treat starting horses like kids going to school in terms of it's a learning experience. They need time to learn. They need to be challenged and they need empathy and and a bit of nurturing along the way. So pull your hat on. Let's get going. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, racing editor at Horse and Hound. And with the clocks going back and a certain chill in the air, it can only mean that the national hunt season is shifting into top gear once again. And who better to welcome on this week's podcast than one of the country's leading jumps trainers, Dan Skelton. Dan, hi, thank you for joining us this week. No problem, Jen. And are you as excited as the rest of us at this time of year? What's the feeling at Lodge Hill right now? Is it exciting times for you? Yeah, definitely. And the, the thing is, this autumn is very slow to get going because it wouldn't rain for a long time. So oh, yes. our awesome horses, the winter horses, if you like, we're, we couldn't get them out in, in any consistency or in any great numbers because because of that. But typical England, it rained eventually. Um, <laughs> we've got them all out. Well, quite a lot of them out now. There's still a, there's still a lot of the novices to go because obviously you're not, you're not just getting them out on the race course. You've got to get them out at home. So when you want to give them a gallop on grass and jump them on grass, that's as you know, it's as relevant as going to the races. So you've got to wait for the rain for that. So everything's normally sort of two or three weeks behind the um, the first of the rains, and that didn't really happen till last week. Oh my goodness! And then you'd had quite a quiet summer as well. Is that right? There's that sort of change of strategy for you. Yeah, definitely. This year, well, two years ago, I sort of made the conscious decision to concentrate on the on the winter horses it was where the owners and sort of where the expectations were going so I had to sort of embrace that and, and get behind it and, and maneuver the whole team into that direction and you know I think the results are showing that that was the correct thing to do and yeah it's not it's not easy it's you know that's the very very top end of our sport so you you, you know it's difficult but um I'm glad I, glad I decided to go that route. Yeah, and I mean, it, it does seem to have paid off. You've had some good winners on the board already in recent weeks, haven't you? Yeah, All Mankind was absolutely magic at uh, Aintree. Oh, wasn't he? Brilliant. Yeah. I have to just uh, mention that picture of you uh, cheering him in. I think that sort of sums up everything about your job, your life, and racing, it really is, isn't it? It was a fantastic image. Yeah, it's good. It just, you know, you've got to enjoy the good days because it's, you know, it's it's sport. You know, you're not just dealing with with animals, which is you know can be heart wrenching at times. Anyway, you're actually dealing with sport as well, which can be so up and down. So you yeah. add it all together, and you've got to realise that you've got to enjoy the, the the good days. You can't just take them for granted. 
totally. Um, and let's just talk about some of the horses you're most excited about this season. Who are the big names coming out again this year that we should be looking out for? Well, Nuba Negra was second in last year's champion chase. Obviously, he's a very good horse. He'll debut in December. Um, My Drogo was last year's leading novice hurdler in the UK. He will go to Cheltenham in November. Third time lucky. He's already won his first chase. He'll go back to Cheltenham in November. Yeah, I mean, all mankind, we've mentioned him. Uh, he'll he'll keep the ball rolling through December, go to Huntingdon on the 5th. Protector out as a grade one winner for, for us last year. He goes to the Paddy Power Gold Cup on the 13th of, of November. Shan Blue, unfortunately, had a fall the other day and he'll um, he'll have to miss the winter. We'll have him back for the springtime, though. So right. you know, those are just like, those are just like a little a little snapshot of what we've got, but there's you know there's a, a much bigger team than just them. But I suppose those are a few that you might have heard of. But um, but we're very very lucky to have a nice bunch of horses, bunch of owners, and all the staff love you know love competing and love their horses, and it's a great environment to be around. So we've just got to keep going forward. Yes, I can imagine. And are you always looking for the younger horses? How do you source your horses? Do you go around the sales or do you get them young? How does that work? Um bits and pieces to be honest with you there's no set that you know Nuba Negra for instance say raced in Spain um, oh, yes. there's no you know there's no sort of set route to finding a good horse that they're, they're out there you've got to go and find them they're not all in one place so yeah you know, just everywhere you know we're always looking at the sales the youngsters they're the most important I feel nowadays is you've got to go and make your own horses I don't feel like I feel like it's getting harder and harder to buy those sort of proven horses at the boutique sales so, um, yeah, I think you've got to go make your own, to be honest with you. Yeah. And actually, you're doing that. Your wife, Grace, has ventured into the breeding side of things. Is that right? Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, she's um, we, we set up a stud uh, a year ago. We bought Nuba Negra's sire, Dink. Amazing. He covered, I think he's going to end up with about 40 foals. Oh, great. This year. Wow. From, from New Year onwards. That'll be really exciting. And hopefully we can... Sort of build on that. We've got nearly twenty broodmares of our own. Uh, there's a lot of youngsters around. It's a big operation. There's not, you know, to be honest with you, national hunt size. There's not many bigger in the UK already. And we got designs on, you know, we got designs on having sort of two or three stallions in a few years' time and doing a proper job of it. It's so exciting. It's brilliant. And I mean, obviously, the whole business is a real family affair. I think uh, Laura Kraut once likened it to Dallas, uh, which seemed to yeah. sum it up perfectly. Tell us about your whole setup at home. How many horses do you have in training? And what about the various sort of satellite yards and things you have there? So it's all like with that included, it's spread over four yards. There's Lodge Hill, which is where the hill gallop is. There's Olm Park, where the flat sand gallop is, which is also where the stud is. Harry lives at Badbury and, and that's sort of a lot of youngsters and there's a few horses in training there as well. And then dads, we've actually got some youngsters there at the moment because all the oh, show gosh. jumpers are abroad. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's four yards there with sort of about 130 horses in training and then a wow. load of youngsters. And like I say, you've got the brood mares and the foals and yeah. everything. So it's a big old setup. It's amazing, isn't it? And I mean, I've been lucky enough to visit a few times. The facilities are just out of this world. I mean, tell us about it. You've got different gallops, sort of vibrating stables. Tell us about all the sort of technology and things that go into the, the preparation of the horses. We've got little bits and pieces to help the horses stay healthy and, and, and sound. We've got a full body scanner, which I think is fantastic. We've got the spars, the vibrating plates. I think that's a very, very good bit of kit. Yeah, we've got about four or five gallops. So we've got the hill gallop, we've got the soft sand gallop, 
We've got a small soft sand gallop at Harry's. Uh, we've got a grass gallop at, uh, at my house as well at Olm Park. And then we've got another grass gallop about 10 minutes away. So then wow. you add in all the schooling facilities as well. So there's plenty to go at. <laughs> and is it, I mean, do you have a sort of schedule per week? Is it sort of mixing it up for the horses, keeping them interested? What's the sort of basis behind your uh, training philosophy? we use we have a we have a system whereby we use we alternate that alternate the days which they use the gallop so they use soft sand one day then hill the next we're chucking the days jump in somewhere normally on a wednesday um yeah and just keep it keep it nice and simple really just get them fit you got to remember a horse can only be 100 percent fit there's no such thing as 101 you start trying to get them over over 100 percent fit you start doing you start causing problems so yeah, you're just trying to keep them healthy, really. A healthy, sound horse will run a lot quicker than a horse that, even if it's 100% fit, that is not feeling great and is, yeah. you know, a bit jarred up or something. So, so health true. and well-being is so important. That's brilliant. Um, and with your whole family involved, what input does everybody have? I mean, is your dad there sharing his jumping expertise? What's Is Harry sort of feeding back to you all that's going on in the saddle as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it just works. It's just seamless. We, we all sort of know what we're seeing what we're thinking what we're feeling and sometimes we need to discuss it other times we don't we just know what's we just know what each other's thinking and what's going on dad does to be honest with you, he just lets us get on with it he doesn't he just enjoys coming racing to be honest with you there'd be, yeah. there'd be an odd occasion where we might ask him something but his job was to go in the ring and win grand prix and gold medals he's yeah. he knows it's a totally different thing what we're doing so yeah, there's there's a bit of crossover, but not a lot. So he doesn't try and enforce, you know, enforce an opinion at all. He'd he'd rather enjoy it, really. Sure. Um, and Harry and Bridget, you know, feed back to me what's going on, and you know, Gracie keeps the business running, and Gracie, my wife. So you know, we it's it works just works well. You just everyone knows their job, and you know, we all get on with it, really. Fantastic. And is there a typical day for you? I dread to think, what time does your alarm go off in the morning? Are you up not and that out bad, at him? <laughs> it's not that bad. People think it's people think it's horrendous, but it's not. I just after six and then get in the yard at seven and you know, everyone knows their job, you know. It's not like there's a you know, everything's planned and everyone knows where they should be at everything every hour of the day. So there's not a big oh my god, we've forgotten this, we've forgotten yeah. that, you know. You, <laughs> We don't we don't run one of those yards that's you know shouting and screaming everything you know everyone's very calm and you know getting on with things and knowing where they should be and you know that 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 works you couldn't you couldn't have it the other way you just couldn't have that you know that insanity around the place it just oh really drives me mad yeah <laughs> um, and I mean all credit you have obviously a fantastic team of um, stable staff and you're very good at championing all their achievements sort of on social media and stuff that's it's a great team you've got working there isn't it yeah but can't do it without your staff and 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 at the end of the day you know I love being a trainer and I enjoy lots of it there's lots of it I don't enjoy you know there's the injuries and yeah you know, all the hard things they're not they're not good but i do enjoy it and 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 you've got to remember that actually to do a job it, you've got to it's got to be enjoyable so you know i try and make it as enjoyable as i can for the staff as well and and let them you know at the end of the day that a lot of them are very experienced horse people they understand their horses that their feedback is excellent and you can allow them to get on with it really you, you just you know sit back and just tweak the little bits that aren't going according to plan and you know, if something's going well, don't interfere. Just just leave it alone. It's working. Yeah. 
And do you ever get a day off? Do you ever get a chance to unwind? I imagine it's the sort of twenty four seven role you have there. Slightly stressful at yeah. times as well. In, in, in the in the winter, to be honest with you, it is. In the winter, it is. Even if yeah. even if I've got a day where I'm not where I'm not racing, it's not it's not you know it's catching up, it's doing everything you know around the yard and planning and you know, you're trying to run a business as well and. No one told me that was going to be difficult. <laughs> it's a bit of a pain, really. I wish that yeah. was a lot easier. But um, yeah, in the in the winter, it is certainly constant, which is why we took that decision, like we mentioned earlier in the earlier on the show, is that you know we we can't keep doing all that constant summer, constant winter. You know, it, it's just it, you're just burning a candle at both ends, and it it's and it's inevitable that something cracks. It's inevitable yes. something gives. Um, and you just want to avoid that. There's no point. There's no point knowing that and ignoring it. Yeah, exactly. It gets you nowhere in the end, does it? It's, no. uh, um, and the rehoming of racehorses has actually been thrown in the media spotlight recently. But you've done a great job, sort of highlighting how important it is to give these horses a good future. Oh, it's vital. And I think a thoroughbred is an absolutely fantastic animal because I've worked with warm bloods, you know, for half my life, and now I've worked with thoroughbreds for probably longer, actually. Yeah, and the time and effort and the work you have to put into the warm bloods is absolutely mind blowing compared <laughs> to the thoroughbreds. A thoroughbred is a very clever animal. It picks up what it's supposed to do very, very quickly. It's not a spooky horse. Most of the time, they're not flighty at all. They like their exercise. They like to be fed. They like, you know, they like their routine. They like to be fed at a specific time. And okay they're not as careful as the warm bloods when you go jumping poles and things like that but in terms of actually working with horses working with thoroughbreds is a thousand times easier than working working with warm bloods yeah a lot of people would be surprised to hear that wouldn't they it's, yeah it's... they would because they think that they're edgy and everything they're not at all but yeah mm. they're edgy when they're in full work and you're giving them you know 14 percent protein food and you 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 get you know you're getting them to the edge but you know, when they're a bit older and they've been there, done that, they're, they're, they're totally different. They're very, very placid. Like I say, they don't ask for a lot. They, you know, they, they want to be warm and fed and exercised, yeah. but that's about it. They're not, they're not needy like warm bloods are. And um, like I say, the educational side of it, you can tell a thoroughbred once and most of them pick it up. Whereas the warm bloods, you know, you can be educating a warm blood for three or four years to not spook <laughs> a water ditch or yes. something. and. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they never, they, it never, the penny never drops with some of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's very important that the rehoming element is there and the rehoming the racehorse classes at, from, you know, from showing to eventing and everything. It's, it's, it's vitally, vitally important. Um, and it's also why we need to keep point to points in the UK because point to points in the UK are not especially a breeding ground for the next generation. Now I do think that that is, and rightly so, becoming more of a thing because I, I really think we've got to commercialise that side of it to to basically stay, you know, stay in the game, if you like, of of thoroughbred preparation for the next for the next uh, generation. But actually, the second hand area where old horses go and teach younger riders and sort of give a, a you know the the amateur scene a a fun day out and and that type of thing is so so important which that worries me the future of point to point in seriously worries me um wow. it needs some serious not consideration because it is considered but i think we need to you know help it all we can mm -hmm. that's yeah it's really interesting it's a whole sort of aspect of the racing industry that's you don't sort of associate it all 
in that sort of way. So that's, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And just take us back to how it all started for you. You're obviously from a family steeped in show jumping history, but how did you make your first steps into racing then? Well, Dad, Dad had some good race horses. He had them with David Nicholson years ago. He had one very good mare called Certainly Strong. Oh, yeah. And he, um, yeah, I just loved it. And then Harry was super keen. Harry always wanted to be a jockey. And <laughs> then I got a job with Paul Nichols and off we went, really. That was it. And then once I started working for Paul, I was always working towards something. I was never just going to be one of those guys that sort of got a job and, you know, worked for Paul and then went and worked for somebody else and yeah. whatever. You know, once I, once I started with Paul, it was always, you know, I was always working towards something. And then yeah, we started training uh, nearly nine years ago now. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Was it nine years ago? No, it wasn't. Eight, it wasn't nine. Eight years it was ago? Eight. Yeah, eight. So, um, yeah. Yeah, off we went. That was it. And you finished second to Paul in the uh, Trainers' Championship last season. You're probably sick of being asked, but is that sort of your next target on the radar to to get that championship title? Yeah, I think that's one of the big. Yeah, that's one of the big targets. It's always been it's always been the plan, but it's not been the priority. If that makes sense, the priority yeah. of the horses and the individuals and the day to days and the, the winning the nows and. You know, you, you know, you can't sort of plan out how to win a championship. That kind of happens by, you know, being great at your job all year and the horses being form and, you know, everything going right for you. And, and that that's how that happens. You can't plan that at the start of a year, but it's a long-term plan to get there. Um, but like I say, it's not, it's not the priority. The priority is winning the races on a day-to-day -day basis and doing the best with each horse. I mean, do you set yourself goals? Do you have a list of races you want to win? What are your sort of ambitions this season and beyond then? This season, I suppose I want to keep, you know, I want to try and reinforce that position of second behind Paul because uh, I think that shows, you know, that shows consistency. And then, you know, on an individual race basis, I want to be winning plenty of grade ones and seeing these good young horses step up the grades and into the into the open levels and i can't really do it on a run to run and win to you know winners basis because i feel like you know that's not a that's not a that's not something that we can use as a barometer to success if that makes sense yeah sure when we when we just started out and we were looking for 100 winners and that year we went for 200 and got it you know yeah. that was that was the plan then and you know but now you know because we're not looking numerically at success. We're looking at quality. It's a, you know, it's a slightly different barometer. You know, it's hard to it's hard to set it, uh, and you know, and then actually say, well, actually that was, that was good enough, or it wasn't. At the end of the year, you'll feel that you'll know if it was good enough or not. Yeah, um, and finally, do you ever take time to sort of look back and appreciate just how far you've come? We've sort of said it was only eight years, but um, do you ever sort of reflect on just? all these amazing achievements and uh, or are you just ambitious for the next winner just ambitious for the next one really and you know when you win it becomes history you know and you can't change history you can only help the future and and that's how it sometimes feel i mean the pain of getting beat lasts a lot longer than the joy of success oh gosh yeah <laughs> in in any i think that's in any sport to be honest with you yeah andre agassi said when he won his first grand slam he said it felt like he was let in on a dirty secret that actually the the pain of getting beaten in the previous grand slams lasted an awful lot longer and motivated him an awful lot more than winning the first one did and it kind of feels like that a little bit because you know you you when you win a race you win it for one set of owners you know you, you, yeah there's a team element but you only win it for one set of owners so 
the you know all the other owners are like okay great you've won that one for them but now come <laughs> on let's win one for us you know so oh. you, you're always looking forward it's constant the wheel just keeps turning and looking back on looking back on it and saying looking back on what you've achieved and everything else I mean, you know i think um people from the outside are better at doing that than you if you're on the inside because you like you're not looking at that you, you you're just looking forward and you know, sometimes when people say to you, Crikey, you've come a long way or you've done well or whatever, you, it's nice to hear because you like to hear that type of thing. But actually, you never sit back and congratulate yourself and say, oh, well, fantastic, you've come a long way, you know, because that's it's not a winner's mentality, is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear it in you. Yeah, you've definitely got that. Uh, well, exciting times indeed, Dad. It's lovely chatting to you and uh, we wish you the best of luck this season. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jen. So I'm joined now by all three members of our Horse and Hound news team. First up, we have our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are things going with you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. I might have to clip again soon already, which is another <laughs> just enjoying the joys of autumn and winter, and isn't it marvellous? <laughs> oh, I went out with my horse last week, so we had like some winter fun. We went to uh, an arena. Well, it wasn't arena eventing. It was like course hire of arena eventing where there was going to be or had been an arena eventing competition then you were able to hire the course and had a lesson over it so that was really fun last week so uh, it was uh, nice to get out again and feel like you know you can you can still get out and have fun with your horses even when it's winter indeed we also have with us our senior news writer lucy elder how are you lucy I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I've been getting my head round um, changing of the seasons and I not not the weather sort of seasons, although that too. But, you know, um, it feels sort of last weekend we had Poe and that felt very much, you know, the end of the eventing season just about in Europe and um, and just suddenly you think, oh, yes, you know, that's all over. And but there isn't an end, you know, it's <laughs> getting my head round, you know, what's coming up now. And um, yeah, national hunt season, point to point season, it's all. It, it it just rolls on, but um, yeah, it's uh, felt like a little bit of a breather last week, really. Yeah, I was. I have to say that uh, when I was looking at my list of eventing competitions that we were covering in the magazine, I was slightly horrified when I discovered that extra Aston La Walls had been added on to the end of the British <laughs> season that extended it by a week. And I was like, oh my goodness, we've got to cover this as well. It's another week's worth of eventing, which is totally fine. I'm always happy for there to be more eventing, but um, it took me slightly by surprise, it has to be said. But don't worry, we have included it. I have to say, the going round where I am is perfect, much better now than we ever have in March. So eventing would be good at the moment on this going yeah it hasn't been that wet has it so actually at the moment i don't think hopefully most people aren't yet too far underwater maybe i'm speaking too soon before we tune into our <laughs> scottish <laughs> correspondent <laughs> we also have becky murray our news writer with us how's it going becky it's so wet and it's so muddy um well actually no it's lovely today but no i've uh, we've had a lot of water and mud up here but um now i was having a giggle at my shetland ponies this morning i got towed across the field by them they're absolutely full of themselves and speaking of clipping i've been threatening every year to give them a little bib clip just to help with their weight management so i might need to invest in some industrial clippers to maybe do that this winter <laughs> are we working on the theory that if they're colder they're going to get thinner is that exactly. the idea exactly that's it <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's something i need to apply and i need to stop boosting the heating and shiver a bit more <laughs> 
Okay, well, it's time to look at the news. Eleanor, I'm going to start with you this week. It's a story that we covered earlier this year after the Tokyo Olympics about the modern pentathlon, where there were some unpleasant sights in the riding phase of the, uh, the of the sport there. A lot of people will remember that and an awful lot of reaction. I think our post bag, A Horse in Hand, was probably the largest I've seen in the time I've worked <laughs> here about it. What's What's new? What's happened now on this? Yeah, so I'm sure everyone uh, remembers what happened in the summer at, at the Tokyo Games and and that straight afterwards UIPM, which is the world governing body, had set up a, a working group to review the riding, look at anything that needed to be changed to, to protect horse welfare and athlete safety. And then on um, the 4th of November, UIP, there had been rumours flying around all over the place that this was going to happen, but on the 4th of November they announced that the riding would be dropped from the pentathlon. Um, this is going to be, it will be in place for Paris 2024 but that will be the last time riding will be in the modern pentathlon. Wow so that's pretty big news and I know that you spoke to Kate Allenby who is a British Olympic pentathlon medalist who got in touch with us about about this earlier in the year and, and has stayed in touch. What did she say? She said she really felt for the members of the working group, who she said were some really good people and have been working very, very hard. And she said she's furious for those people because with all the work they had put in and and now it's it's just been dropped. And, and she did ask how long has the UIPM known about this and, and was it sort of a smoke screen and they were planning to drop it anyway? We don't know. Mm, so we don't know if this is a direct reaction to Tokyo or something that's been in the pipeline for longer. And some other responses to this as well. I know you've spoken to quite a few people. What are people saying? Yeah, in, well, we spoke to World Horse Welfare and, and they've said, well, of course, that the format of, of the modern pentathlon is a matter for UIPM. They, they've they said they question the thinking behind the decision and, and they've said that, of course, no one could con condone what happened in Tokyo. But it, as they've pointed out, the issue wasn't that the horses were being ridden, but that how they were being ridden and, and the rules of the competition. And they believe that could have been addressed, kept the sports integrity and kept the riding in the pentathlon. Uh, we also spoke to Pentathlon GB, who said it was a sad day for the sport and, and they're going to have to assess their talent pathways because a lot of um, pentathletes come in through the pony club and a riding background, especially the Tokyo gold medalist Kate French. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because in a way you mm. think, oh, well, getting rid of uh, the horses from it will take away the welfare issues. But that then raises a lot of questions about sort of social license to use horses in sport. And it feels like just taking them out isn't really the right answer. It should be a case of addressing the issues rather than just saying, let's not do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you, Eleanor. Well, I'm sure there's going to be more fallout from that decision and more conversations and we will be following it as it happens. Becky, you have been looking at bullying in the horse world this week. What's the trigger for this story? The National Anti-Bullying Week, which is organised by the Anti-Bullying Alliance, uh, takes place from the 15th of November. And this is an annual campaign that takes place to raise awareness of bullying. And this year's theme is One Kind Word. The organisation rightly said that kindness is more important today than it ever has been. And dealing with the pandemics really sort of highlighted that. Now, unfortunately, bullying does take place in the horse world. This isn't a new thing. And we've ran stories on the sort of campaigns before, but I think it means, unfortunately, we do still need to just keep talking about it and keep highlighting it because this isn't an issue that ever seems to go away. Yeah. And what are some of the messages that are sort of going out to riders at, at this time? 
the key message is speaking out whether that's you know it's taking happening to you or you witness bullying sort of happening to somebody else and you know it's it's not acceptable anywhere and i think when horses are a hobby for so many of us it really is so disappointing that it does take place it might be a person at a show or on a yard and of course we've got social media which gives that platform for negative things to be said behind a screen I spoke for the organisation Riders Minds, which provides mental health support for equestrians, and what they said was it's a really tricky and quite uncomfortable topic, but it does still need addressing, and I think that's so true. And is there any response from the industry bodies? Did British Equestrian have sort of a a stance on this? Yes, well, firstly, British Equestrian member bodies all have safeguarding policies on their website with contact details of who bullying should be reported to. The chief executive, Jim Eyre, told us that bullying is something the Federation feels very strongly about and it works with its member bodies to ensure people are safeguarded and from bullying or harassment and abuse. And I also spoke to the Equestrian Employers Association and that encourages employers to have a zero tolerance policy on yards and to lead by example in this. And I think it's really making sure everyone works together in the industry to say that it's not okay and really just to keep looking out for each other. Mm. Well, thank you, Becky, for that. Lucy, coming to you last but not least today, you have been covering British Dressage's AGM. It feels like AGM season. Um, There was some positive news there, wasn't there? There was, and you're right, Pippa, it is kind of AGM season at the moment. And I always find it, um, it's quite nerdy, isn't it? A bit (laughs) quite interesting because all the things we've been talking about over the last year and uh, all the sort of themes kind of get pulled to a point where um, we get the balance sheets and you get a big review of of the year from from these organisations. And there was positive news. There is no, I mean, there's no shying away from the fact of how difficult the last couple of years have been. I mean, that's a complete understatement, but um, not just in terms of British dressage, but in terms of, well, the world, really. Um, But... uh, Focusing on British dressage, there is really positive news on sport. Obviously, we had all those fabulous medals this summer across um, able-bodied and para-dressage and youth sport as well. Um, And the majority of the 2021 fixtures calendar was salvaged despite, you know, the early early challenges uh, in the winter and the spring and things. So that bounced back, um, as did membership numbers. um, And there's been been growth as well, uh, particularly in parasports. So, yeah, it was that there was definite positive sort of peppered through. um, Yeah. Without shying away from the fact that it has been been a challenging time. Mm. And some information was shared on the organisation's finances as well, I think. Yes, that's right. I mean, they have taken a hit and that hit is going to continue to be felt. Uh, They suggested that the full financial impact is going to be seen over a two year period at least. Uh, One of the reasons for that is the extensions offered to registration, um, for example, are going to be reflected in the 2021 accounts as well, um, because, of course, that's been sort of extended, if you like, um, to across the 2020 and 2021 um, financial years. Uh, But the big takeaway really from the meeting um, I found was how the membership and in fact all the sports supporters, whether organisers, venues, owners, whatever, um, 
has helped British dressage weather the storm um, and it wouldn't have been possible for for them to do so without without that support so there was quite a lot of big thank yous really going on through there and it was interesting again go back to to sort of my nerdy fascination with with how things uh, play out but obviously we were writing about you know how how organizations are gonna were gonna weather this this COVID storm back when no one really knew what was going to happen how long it was going to go on for all the changing government advice and things around lockdowns and shows happening or not happening and all of that so to actually see sort of coming now to a stage where oh gosh I really hope we are through through the hardest part to see how how that membership support um did make it financially possible for for the for the sport that they love and we all love to to carry on and to be coming out the other side is it's quite it's a nice positive after quite a quite a hard time really Mm. And anything else we should know about that was covered at that AGM? Yes, there was a few sort of early rule updates and uh, and things, which is another also an interesting thing that often comes out of AGMs. So we heard that um, the removal of the mandatory Spurs requirement advanced and above is going to be coming in for 2022. Um, and members are also reminded that the ban on removing sensory hairs uh, will be fully in line with the FEI rule uh, from 2022 as well. That did come in earlier this year, but that is, you know, a, a big reminder to to members there and there was some feedback as well on the national championships which has been uh, a big sort of discussion point this year with the new venue and things uh we heard that there was been overwhelmingly positive feedback but um there's some you know discussions in the pipeline for future years sort of more range of food options um variety of trade stands and things as well as the sort of desire for live streaming and all the all the financial and commercial sort of discussions that go on around around that and uh, whether it can work or if it's it's not going to work and things like that so nice to be talking about sort of looking forwards if you, if you know what i mean and um and yeah sort of sport for the what's happening and what's coming up in the next in the next year or so Mm. Well, thank you very much, Lucy, for giving us the overview of that AGM and to Becky and Ella for joining us today too. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. On this episode, I'm going to talk about starting and I'm going to get into the, the sort of myths and things that people perceive with starting and the goings on in and around starting. So I'll tell you a little bit about how I do it. And then maybe we'll chat about some of the things that people think happen when you're starting a horse. So I treat starting horses like kids going to school in terms of it's a learning experience. They need time to learn. Um, they need to be challenged and they need empathy and, and a bit of nurturing along the way. So my starting process is four weeks rest and then a two-week block now that this is this for me is like a school term if you will so they do four weeks and obviously there's they have the weekends off as well uh, because a rest for me as much as the horses you know and that is important to note you as a person as the person doing the job you need to be 
you know, fit and mentally able to, to do the job as well. So my starting, and that is really important to note, it's called starting. So it's the very initial processes of a horse's ridden um, career. That six weeks gets them to a point where they can, they're hopefully comfortable with, a, with being ridden, accepting of the rider and direction. However, these things are not set in stone. So I would expect the, the owner or the person that takes the horse on to ride them for another two or three weeks and form a bit of a relationship or a bit of a bond with their horse. And that is also why I don't do a continuous six-week block because that break allows for me to ride for two weeks and the owner um, or the next person to, to have some time with them and bond with the horse. So that's sort of an overview of the time frame that I like to spend when I'm starting a horse. And there's lots of tricky things that happen when you're starting horses. Um, they, it doesn't always go, well, as you might think, anyone who starts horses and has been in the business for a long time, they will have a process. Now, there's many roads lead to Rome, as they say, and there are different processes, but it's really, really important that there is a process that's followed because it's a building block to learning. But also it allows for, as you go through the process, if there's any problems, then you can drop back and correct and then move on. And it gives you a bit of an understanding of how to move forward with other horses. You might spot some anomalies because when you're starting horses, you think I get bunches of horses and I think, ah, oh, this starting horses is so easy. And uh, then that horse comes along and you're like, well, this is not how I saw this going. And you've really got to think outside the box and maybe go back a couple of processes before you start moving forward again. It doesn't always go in a straightforward way. And having processes means that people starting horses, if they can have longevity as a career, because a lot of people will look at me and say, you must be mad to do what you do. I mean, getting on a, what in essence is a wild horse. And that is one of the myths that I wanted to talk about as well. Um, we don't have wild horses here in in um, in the UK and probably a lot of Europe. There are patches where they are, but um, it's not like starting horses in Australia and in some some places in America where you know horses have never seen human beings and they're completely wild, which is where a lot of horsemanship really stems from. Handling those untouched horses over here horses are much more humanized and so we're starting horses from a from a different place they're they're comfortable generally with being around humans it's just taking them that next step to accepting being ridden and controls and all that sort of thing if you were to give me a horse that was completely wild i would feel slightly uncomfortable and i'd have to really sit down and think about it because in my professional career of starting horses I've, I haven't started very many, you know, untouched horses. So there is, there is that slight difference for those of you that are listening to, an, listening to this podcast in Australia or, or somewhere else around the world where, where you might be asking the question, I hold my hand up. 
but it still all comes down to the same thing to to gaining that trust and respect through the process and and building that relationship so once you gain trust and respect uh, with a horse that you've started you've got to try and get this horse set up to trust and respect the next person that gets on them and this is where for professionals it creates a particular challenge starting your own horse is one thing because you can you get to know them and you can drop them and pick them up and and spend some time on certain things where you're a little bit stuck i mean my goodness i've watched some things that fly around on youtube and bits and pieces of people bringing horses on and they're i just think this is crazy horses diving and leaping and bucking all over the place and you know and then they show a clip a little bit later of this horse you know jumping around a course of jumps and doing well and yes that can can happen and if you're starting the horse that's great but if you put yourself in in someone who's starting a horse's horse for somebody else then you know we have that added pressure of getting this horse safe so I suppose I've got some priorities in terms of what I want to achieve when I'm starting a horse, as I've said, accepting the rider and their controls. But then it's being able to pass that, that trust and respect that you've gained onto the next person. So that involves, for, for my process, spending time with the next person to ride and just giving them a feel and offering some advice and, and pointers that are going to help create that bond so they're going to succeed from there on because as i've said this is just starting a horse things are not as truly established i.e the horse the horse's re responses to you are not all necessarily automated they only know what they know but if things are changed too much then your horse starts to get a little bit i suppose confused and and then resistances start to creep in and the horse starts to digress. So it is a really, um, it's a real challenge in starting horses. And it's why sometimes um, some of the horses that I get through, they're not really suitable for the people that have bought them. So I get horses come in that potentially competition horses or have, have a little bit about them. And the people that have brought them to me are novice riders and have ridden one, maybe two horses for the large part of their career. And now they're getting this youngster that is a handful or, or is going to take some time, let's shall we say, before they get to a point where they're reliable. And these two combinations can sometimes lead to difficult conversations. And I have to say, sometimes I can be quite honest and say, listen, I... I don't think this horse is going to be suitable for you. It's a tough conversation to have, but as I say, one of my motivators or things to be aware of is, is this horse safe? Is this pair going to be safe? It's something to really consider if you're sending a horse away or if you're looking to buy a young horse. Do you feel confident to ride a horse that is going to be a bit wobbly? might have a spook or two and and a little hump hopefully that's as far as it goes but you know these things can happen as your horse is is starting to um get to that point where they feel like yours and you all know if you've been riding horses when you've ridden a young horse for a while you suddenly get that feeling of 
I know you and I feel comfortable on you. And that can take, I would say, up to a year and not a lot less. So although I may do the first six weeks, it's a year, I find, even with my own horses, that I I get to that point where I go, oh, I feel like I can really get into you and train you to do what, you know, the discipline that I'd like you to do. So they're sort of things to just bear in mind to get get your horse safe and to a point where you can have fun with, with your horse as you move forward. Thank you, Jason. Next week, Jason will be back to talk about bitting a young horse and our guest will be the show producer, Danielle Heath. Plus, we'll chat about the forthcoming point-to-point season and the rest of the week's news. Thank you for listening. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.